Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. G'day, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University, and it's my pleasure to be speaking this week with the outgoing ANU VC, the Vice-Chancellor, Professor Brian Schmidt, AC, who wraps up in uh, in that capacity in just a matter of days, I think. Brian, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Great to be back. Ed, yes, welcome back, I should say. Um, you're going earlier than you had to. That was a decision you took. What was the rationale for that? Well, I wrote myself a little letter back in 2015, just before I started the job, and I asked myself a series of questions about... Uh, when it was time to finish. And it included, you know, have I gotten done what I wanted to get done? If there are things I hadn't get done, hadn't gotten done, if I stayed on, would I get those things done? And finally, was I thinking more about saving what I had already done or thinking about what I'm doing next? And the reality is I'd gotten done most of the things I said I was, whatever I hadn't gotten done. I knew I wasn't going to get done. And I was spending most of my time thinking about making sure the things I had already done stayed done yeah. as opposed to the next things. And, you know, after after eight years, uh, this is a very challenging job. And it's really important to hand over the baton to fresh legs and and go out, I think, you know, when things are still going well. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. And, and I understand something of that idea of uh, getting to a point where you wonder – you, you sort of you've you've done a number of things. You don't want to be spending too much time protecting things you've done. You want to be thinking forward, and so, in a way, you then have to say, "Well, am I the right person to continue to do that on an ongoing basis?" And also, am I starting to sort of come back to ground I've already covered? Yeah, and I think uh, you know, running a big complex organization. You can't just suddenly say, well, let's change directions yeah. because you've set the direction for eight years. And sometimes organizations you know, do need to have course corrections, and they're best done by people who don't have the baggage of the past. And you know, we've had COVID. We've had a really massive change of higher education over the last three or four years, and I do think it's good for people to come in and I'm going to be our model employee down here supporting the vision of Genevieve Bell as the next vice chancellor. Yes. Yeah, so and we'll come back to what you're going to do uh, afterwards in a moment. But 
Um, just on the that that notion you say of changing direction and getting someone else. I mean, the the, the big example it strikes me at the moment in terms of that of, of the license that comes with that change of management is the resetting of the Australia-China relationship uh, with the change of government. It 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 almost does give everyone involved. Uh, the uh, the authority or the license or the capacity to look at things afresh and and perhaps make changes where they where they can be made where it's advantageous to do so. So, yeah, it gives people the opportunity to make changes and always forgiven. Uh, it is a chance for things that have been done to be forgiven as well because the new people, you know, didn't have to make those hard decisions, mm. and so it's it's almost like a rebirth. Yeah, really important part for an organization. Yeah, it's interesting, and I noticed that um, just as we're speaking, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the the Premier of uh, Queensland, longest serving female Premier of the country so far, um, and that's some of the arguments that are being made there as well. You know, she says, "When I first got in, it was like climbing Mount Everest that election, and I've climbed it twice since. I don't need to do it again." I thought it was one of the better rationales I've seen for someone resigning, whether it's you know, too much spin or not, I guess that's up for, for others to debate. But, but after was, nine years going through COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and you did that honor, too, really. Time you, to finish up. <laughs> you did that. Well, that's true. You did that too, didn't you? I indeed, mean, managing indeed. a large organization through that. And I mean, that was absolutely sort of, you know, apocalyptic in terms of its impact on the, on, on the university's business. Yeah, that was the part of being vice chancellor that did catch me uh, by surprise. And it everyone was else, yeah. really, really hard. And it was hard for everyone. But running a big organization where you just had to do major changes um, that were unpleasant for several years, and we're still living through the aftermath of it. Yeah, it kind of, as one of my colleagues said overseas, who was a vice chancellor, said it, it made running a university joyless. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Now, let's talk about this university because not everyone who listens to this is is in Canberra or is a, or is a, a alum of ANU. ANU is the national university. What makes it national? What's the you know, you talk about the things that you wanted to do. This was one of the things that you listed to yourself, wasn't it? That this idea of reinforcing the unique role of ANU. Perhaps explain to our listeners what that unique role is. Well, ANU is the national university because it is the only university that is essentially in you know done by an act of parliament. So we are an act of federal parliament. Yeah, yeah. act of federal parliament. So all other all other universities are of states. So we are unique that way, and along comes with that a set of expectations in our act, uh, which goes to being a research intensive university when there were no research intensive universities in Australia just after World War II. Yeah, so this is set up in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And it's really, when you look at it and you think about the time, it's it's a pretty visionary piece, piece of thinking, isn't it? Bold. It was. And uh, I was having a chance the other day to listen to Nugget Coombs do his Boyer lectures, describing how they had this vision of like a social reconstruction and to think about things from a purity of thought and making this brand new world. And then when he became chancellor of the university in the late 60s, early 70s, he found chaos and people worried about their own little bits of research in a way that he hadn't quite figured. That being true, those people are continually doing research that matters for Australia and this part of the world. 
And that was something I thought was essential, that this university live up to that mandate to make sure that we do help Australia find its place in the world, and especially this region, because that was our mandate. And if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. And if we can focus on that, then we will be living up to the promise of the national university and I think uh, provide great value to the Australian people. And that involves a particular relationship with the government of Australia, doesn't it? The public service, we're located in Canberra, it's uh, overwhelmingly a kind of a public service town uh, or a public sector town. Um, and th that role as a national university involves a relationship without compromising academic freedom or the independence and integrity of the institution. It does involve a kind of a unique relationship, doesn't it? Yeah, I am the most, uh, uh, well, I, was, I, I guess I'm a public servant, um, but I have the most freedom of any public servant there is, much more than the RBA governor or the head of the ABC, both which would be probably the closest things to me. That is, the government doesn't uh, tell me what to do, does not appoint me, does not appoint my chancellor, and has a minority of our governing board. So there's not much they can do. But that means we need to be constructive. We don't want to be combative. But if the government tries to in, you know, come in and uh, act poorly, we have the independence to push back. And, and that has been respected uh, my entire time as vice chancellor, sometimes begrudgingly, but it has been respected. So finding the place where with our, um, I guess, looking at evidence, you know, and trying to understand how we might approach problems and solve them from a fairly pure you know, foundational way and finding where that intersects with what the government needs and wants right now, that's a place where we can be creative. Sometimes, you know, we find ourselves on a politically unpopular side of the fence and that's fine. Uh, but there's a whole bunch that we do where we can really help the government, you know, do their economic reforms, understand the environment, help the change to hopefully uh, clean energy future and everything in between. And national security. National security, understanding the region, the geopolitical, cultural aspects of the region. I mean, it, it's a very broad remit that we have here. Now. When you spoke to the Tuckwell scholars recently, I was at that dinner, and uh, it was a really lovely evening and a, a you know prestigious event, and and really important for those Tuckwell scholars that are outstanding students. Um, one of the things you said in that uh, address that you gave, which I thought was really interesting, was about your attitude to failure, and I, I wondered if I could tease that out with you. you. You said something along the lines of, "I've tried a number of things, and some of them I've failed at, but I don't mind failure as long as I as long as I'm." you know, prepared to have a go and and to learn from it. Yeah, I think uh, we always worry about being successful, but what's success? Success is not just succeeding at something boring. It's succeeding at something interesting. I mean, yeah. I won a Nobel Prize, not because I did something that was uh, boring. I did something where I got an answer. It was completely unexpected. It was, it was a highly risky piece of work. So I've never worried too much about failing a bit. I mean, you try to fail quickly. You try to always have an, a plan B and an off-ramp. But I just take failure as part of a, a day, a month, or a year's work. 
And the key is to keep momentum and to keep confidence. And if you have confidence and you're trustworthy, people will support you and when you fail and help you pick yourself up and get you on your way again. So And to be open as well, isn't it? Well, I mean, that was the point you were making, I think, that night as well, was that the idea of being open to changes in direction that may suggest themselves as a result of your experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I gave an example that, um, you know, when I started after my finishing my PhD, I started something that is actually quite an important topic now, but wasn't that interesting there. And then I saw the opportunity to do what eventually led to the Nobel Prize. And I completely changed directions, quit publishing papers that didn't come out for 10 years later, and I put all my effort on that. And yeah, I definitely put uh, you know all my chips on red and went forth. And if it hadn't succeeded, well, I mean, I had tried, but something else would have come along. I would have been able to do something else. It's not like it would have been the end of days. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting lesson, and also I think you were saying to them that uh, uh, you know your attitude when you were an undergraduate, uh, what you were interested in, it didn't you, it didn't necessarily link causally to where you ended up, but that was a series of, I suppose, decisions you made along the way, and yeah, so I was always going to be a meteorologist, and when I kind of went to the local forecast office, you know, right at the end of high school, it was not what I was expecting. So I just had to go oh, really? do something completely different, astronomy. And I never thought astronomy would provide a, a job as an astronomer. I, there, I knew there were 2,000 astronomers in the world, and I certainly wasn't likely to be one of them. But I knew astronomy would teach me a whole bunch of things that would be useful. And I wasn't sure what I would do, but I knew I would have the skills to do something useful. And I was absolutely right. I was I was a pretty cluey 17-year-old, it turns out. Oh, that's good. I'm very encouraged by that. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about uh, a number of different things. I want to talk about uh, uh, an issue that is very current at the moment. And um, when I say we were talking about a number of things, I mean, there were, there were sort of things associated with what's politically tricky. This subject is very politically tricky. I just want to get your response to it. In the US, a number of your equals, uh, the, the vice chancellors, they're called presidents in the US of prestigious institutions like Harvard, Princeton, um, actually I'm not sure about Princeton, but Harvard, um, Pennsylvania, MIT, I think, have got themselves into some degree of hot water 
when they're asked questions uh, in Congress about in, in front of congressional committees about um, uh, the, well, the question that was put to, uh, for example, uh, Claudine Gay, I think, uh, who is the, um, the the president of Harvard, was does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules on bullying and bullying and harassment? Um, her answers and the answers of the other two, when they had basically the same questions put to them, were pretty weird, pretty equivocal. They th- said things like, "It can be, depending on the context." Has this come up on campuses here? Well, not quite anything that extreme. Um, there is, I guess, a little bit of difference within what is acceptable in Australia and what is acceptable in the United States. So the United States Constitution uh, guarantees the right to free speech and at a level that is not guaranteed here in Australia. Yeah, so, so this can, is the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment. And I think my colleagues at these institutions uh, – Got down into the weeds and couldn't see, yes. you know, the forest for the trees. You could sort of see the media training there almost. Well, they like, got overtrained. I, yeah. I think they were overly prepped. Yeah. And so in the United States, where universities are continually beaten up by conservatives, who was the one who yeah, yeah. laid the trap here? Yeah, a mega Trump uh, person. Yeah. You know, the the normal thing to say is, well, you know, we. We go to extreme lengths to preserve uh, academic freedom and freedom of speech. But they do have, Harvard does certainly, which I'm well aware, a code of conduct of what you can and cannot do on campus. And Harvard's is almost identical to ANU's with respect to you cannot bully or intimidate people uh, as part of the code of conduct. And I need to make this point here because, uh, and I'm not contradicting you, I'm just clarifying it for listeners. I mean, the the wording was, does calling for the genocide of the Jews. Now, how can that be anything other than bullying and, I mean, of the most horrendous type There is no way I can possibly think, if they had thought about it, that... Uh, calling for the genocide of anyone, yeah, but particularly uh, that anything group. Other particularly than a, that group, though, yeah. that, you know, that's been subject to it. I mean, exactly. Uh, it, there is just no way that that is okay on our campus or probably any campus. That being said, I'd be interested to see what the University of Chicago said uh, says because they have a very pure view that almost anything is allowed, as near as I can tell, on that campus. So it definitely would not. Um, be allowed here at uh, ANU, and action would be taken, as one would hope. You don't want to silence. I mean, that is hate speech. It is hate speech, nominally protected under the First Amendment, but not under the uh, the rules uh, of conduct at the universities. So I think they got confused between the Constitution and their own rules. Yes, I think they did. It was it was one of those moments where you thought, "Come on, just answer it, answer it." You know, like uh, listen to the question. Be careful when you prepare for these things because it's easy to over prepare yeah. and forget about your foundational principles. So when we deal with this, and I've had to deal with a number of times on our campus, I always go back to the highest level and say. What's the principles? Mm. And I don't start in the middle. I always start each one from the top and layer it down so I can have a solid piece of decision-making because it's really easy to get the wrong answer if you don't start at the top. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it is actually quite simple, isn't it? 
That one I thought would have been pretty simple, yeah. but it, you know, it is not easy. Uh, as someone who has been, you know, grilled by media or senators, it is easy to uh, feel intimidated and and not say what you're what you should in those areas. It's it's harder than people think. Yeah. Now I don't want to harp on about that because there are other issues to discuss, including the media that you just mentioned. Um, but it just surprised me that after the first what we would call train crash response, the next two did the same thing. Um, <laughs> you well, could they just, were all trained by the same set of lawyers. Yeah, so but you could. Well, you, yeah, but you could just see the sort of level of, of of anger and 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 the spectacular nature of this failure in this answer just growing in the room. And you would have thought someone would have worked out. Look, we need to answer this just straight out on a, on a matter of basic human values. Um, let's go back to that question of media, though. You spoke recently to the National Press Club. Your last address there uh, as Vice Chancellor. And you had some very interesting things to say, including about the media. Um, I wonder if you could just summarise your your you know your argument that you were putting about about media and and trust. Yeah, well, so I essentially reflected that media and universities are given special, you know, freedoms uh, within society. I would say, arguably, to keep the government, um, you know. Accountable. Yeah. Media, press freedom, universities, academic freedom, and autonomy. And well, universities retain a very high level of trust when we go out and ask people, media's trust level is even lower than the government and political parties themselves. And the question I ask is how can we have a functioning democracy when the trust in the media organizations that are there to report on what they're doing is even less trustworthy than the government itself. And, and I, I think it's a real issue and there's reasons for it. You know, uh, the internet has really disintermediated the business model of uh, mainstream media. And we are in a place where the 24-7 news cycle uh, is very shallow it's all kind of gotcha. We don't have a lot of reflection. And it, uh, I think, is not doing uh, service to a complex world, which is always portrayed as black or white. Can you guarantee this? Will you say this is true? These are the types of things that are routinely done. And the answer is nothing is 100%. And we have to live this, except for perhaps that genocide question, which is pretty easy to be 100% on. Yeah, I would have thought so. Um, I wonder what the cause of this lack of trust in media is, though. You, you talk about disintermediation. You talk about uh, the 24-hour media cycle or news cycle, obviously the hunger for content. There's also intense competition within the sector itself, within media, and a lot of sniping, uh, a lot of, lot of um uh, aggravation between media organizations and journalists. Is, is all of that part of what creates the problem, that, that consumers look at this and they don't know there's this plethora of information, there are people contesting interpretations of each other and the like, and the overall impact is that people lose confidence in what it is that's being fed to them? Yeah, it's a highly fragmented uh, landscape now. People are fed their own 
kind of desires, the things that rise to the top of Q to be fed are the things that are the most polarizing, that you know have the biggest shock value. And so when you look out there, you say, well, I believe this. And of course, you believe it because it's continually fed to you. And you see all these other people- reinforced all the time. Yeah, yeah. So you get your own views reinforced, and then you see the other views non-reinforced. And, and not just non-reinforced, but non-validated. So if you think about, yeah. uh, this is me making the comment rather than you, but you think about- like the Australian newspaper, for example, I mean, it would it would lose about thirty percent of its copy if it didn't just constantly negatively negatively critique the ABC, um, and so you have this kind of uh, you know, not just this this complaint about the or this tendency to get news that you want to see, but you have this ongoing prosecution of a complaint about alternatives to that news. Yeah, and I, I guess it's becoming, you know, the media is becoming self-referential, as, yeah. as you say. There's yeah. a lot of people talking about um, what media figures are doing and, you know, they become- What their motives are. What their motives are, or quite frankly, just going into their personal lives and things, and they become the news themselves. I mean, I guess I see news organizations trying to make news as much as they report it these days. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're like me and you're out there- trying to find some interesting views. I just, I want to have, I don't, I want to have people tell me uh, what's happening and then some interesting deep analysis. I don't care about, well, so-and-so, you know, slipped up uh, on, you know, a particular day and didn't answer this question mm. very well. I, you know, that that's not the stuff I want. And it comes back to our, our presidents. You know, they screwed up and they've all acknowledged that mm. they screwed up. It's not clear whether or not you know, any of them will keep their jobs because they got deers in the headlight. And one could say, well, it's such a foundational thing, but they were, they got- Yeah, there's a lot of pressure in that moment, as you say. And yeah. it's not clear to me that um, it's appropriate for them to lose their uh, their jobs. I think um, they certainly learn a lesson and absolutely need to apologize, but- Anyway, we'll see. But that and that speaks to the hyperpartisanship, you know, particularly in the US. It's worse than it is even here, of course. And and so we have everything viewed viewed through that sort of binary frame. You know, the the MAGA Trump Republicans who are who were prosecuting these questions, uh, and and the critique about universities being bastions of of uh, of the left and uh, and and uh, anti-Semitic and you know these sorts of narratives and uh, so in that that kind of charged environment is not one in which you are going to have um, the cool reflection, the assessment, the 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 comparison of of alternatives and uh, and and proper considered uh, debate. And the ability for people who are angry, even small numbers of them who become very uh, expert at this, to ramp up anger in ways that make your life miserable um, is is really uh, uh, you know quite remarkable these days and it makes being a public figure harder and harder less and less pleasant and can I say it's a selection function such that we get more and more inhuman people doing the, the lives of um, the public because yeah. no one else can stand it it's 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 actually quite uh, a problem I think for the future yeah it's a really really important point uh, final question. Uh, because you made a reference to it before about you being a model employee in the future. Tell us what you're going to go on and do now. So I'm going back to be a professor of astronomy up at Mount Stromlo Observatory, the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. And I'm going to be chasing merging neutron stars. So neutron stars, two of them coming together, they make a 
big cataclysm in space. They produce the heavy elements in the universe that I want to understand that process. But they also give me a way of measuring distance very accurately in a way that uh, we just don't have uh, many alternatives. So I will be doing probably a 10-year or longer project to try to refine our measurement of the expansion rate of the universe because some in my eight years off, some problems have crept in that uh, no one completely understands, and it would be good to take a second look at it. On the expansion of the universe, how quickly is – I mean – it's a it's a very hard thing to get one's head around, but but is the speed of light the ex, the, the speed at which the universe is expanding? No. So um, it, it turns out the universe expands both slower and faster than the speed of light. So the the way that we look and measure describe the expansion of the universe, it's how fast something that is a given distance is moving away from us. So we measure distances in astronomy in megaparsecs, millions of parsecs, and a parsec is three and a bit light years, right? right. And a light year is how far light will travel in a year at 186,000 miles per second. So if you are one megaparsec away, which sounds like a long ways away, it's the nearest part of the universe, you will be moving on average about 70 kilometers per second away from us. You go two, it's 140. You go three, it's 210. So you keep doing that as you go further and further away, things are moving faster and faster away from us. We should have started talking about this at the start. I could keep talking about this. I find it fascinating. Brian Schmidt, thanks so much for uh, being on Democracy Sausage. I hope we can have you back in your new capacity at some stage, not to comment on on uh, the university per se. That, that, that role, as you say, will be handed over to Professor Genevieve Bell, but uh, to talk about perhaps any other issue that you'd like to talk about. And uh... Absolutely. I will hopefully get a chance to run around the world and do all sorts of Interesting conversations about, you know, how AI, the environment, uh, democracies mm. are working. These are all things I'll continue to be uh, actively interested in. And they are things that have very much characterized your tenure as vice chancellor. And I think that has reflected extremely well on you and on the on the institution, it's uh, it's been so good to watch you and listen to you um, um, thinking and and inviting us to think about uh, a lot of these issues. Um, been a very broad and and engaged VC. So thank you for that. And thanks for being on Democracy Sausage again this time. My pleasure. Now, just before we go, I should remind you, if you haven't heard me bang on about this for the last few weeks, uh, that our final episode will be happening next week. It is the uh, infamous or famous or notorious or whatever you might say awards episode where we um, recognize the the good and the bad and the, and the plain risible about uh, politics. And we have a number of fairly creative categories. Basically, it's fairly fluid, let's face it. Um, and we're interested in, in your views about that. So if you want to nominate someone for best politician of the year, best performance, biggest joke, biggest dud, make up a category even uh, and, and provide a nomination, then by all means do so. We've had a number of good ones come in uh, and we'll be talking with uh, between myself, uh, Dr. Maria Tuflaga and Professor Frank Bongiorno next week. It's always a, a, a good laugh at the end of the year and one or two serious comments as well. Uh, and you can uh, provide your suggestions by email if you come to us at um, the email address, democracy sausage, or one word, democracy sausage at anu.edu.au.
Look forward to hearing from you and uh, we'll be back with you next week with that episode. Bye for now. 